Well, I said earlier, it's good uh, to be back. Um, Bethany is at home with a sick child. I've told several of you that. And uh, so she's not here this morning, but we missed being here last week. We were down in Virginia. Uh, My parents retired from uh, both of them teaching at the same school for over 35 years. um, And they retired. They're both retiring. actually had their last day on Friday. And uh, so they had a big celebration for them, Um, like 300 people there. Um, It was really neat. And uh, they named the gym at the school after my dad, uh, which is pretty cool. And so um, my brother and I wrote a little uh, letter letter to the editor and uh, got it published in the local paper there about our parents and um, you know, just a neat example of faithfulness, um, not flashy, um, you know, not well known outside their community, um, but man, just consistency and faithfulness and loving on people. Um, and uh, I think those are the type of people that uh, make a bigger impact than we realize and that uh, have quite the load of crowns and trophies awaiting them in heaven. Um, so let that be an encouragement to you. Um, even if you don't feel like you're making an impact, just be faithful where God has put you and do it over the long haul. And uh, that's what he's called us to. So, so it was a good time there. Enjoyed that. Um, the week before that, obviously, uh, we had Marcel and Jacqueline Howard here with us. And uh, told you that Marcel was candidating, uh, meeting with our search committee, our elders and all of that for uh, our family pastor position and wanted to let you know, I asked Zach last week to let me tell you uh, that we offered him the position and he accepted. And so, yes, that's good. Yeah, an appropriate response. We're very excited. Uh, the search committee's excited. I know the teenagers uh, were very excited about the time they got to spend with him. Uh, he did a great job preaching. So uh, we're looking forward to having them here with us. And uh, they're, we're working out the details of exactly when they'll be he- here. Uh, he has some commitments this summer uh, that he's already signed up for, um, ministry type of things. Uh, so uh, we're looking forward to having them here. We'll keep you up to date on... Uh, on when they'll be here. Um, if you or someone you know has a house for rent, they would love to talk to you. So I'll kind of put that out there initially. Uh, so if you hear anything, let us know. But I think it's just another reminder um, of just how faithful God has been to this church over the years and continues to be. Uh, and we're looking forward to having Marcel and Jacqueline and their kids help us to pursue our mission here at Woodhaven making followers of Christ who worship God, connect with one another, and serve the church and the world. That's what we're all about. We want disciples to be made and to be sent out from here, and I think they will be a blessing to us in that endeavor. So thank the Lord for that. You can open up to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8 is where we'll be. I'm glad to get back to Mark. Um, As you're opening up there... I'm not overly familiar uh, with Greek mythology. Maybe some of you are. You've done some reading in Greek mythology. But I do want to tell you about a couple of mythological characters this morning. Uh, Their names are Zeus. I'm sure you've heard that name before. And Prometheus. Maybe you've heard that name. There was a movie a few years ago called Prometheus. Um, Maybe you've heard those. Maybe you haven't. But uh, just for clarification, Zeus in Greek mythology is the most powerful of all the Greek gods. He holds all the keys. And Prometheus is sort of a lesser god. He's what they call a titan god. He's above humanity, uh, but he would be less than Zeus. 
Now, Prometheus was the, in Greek mythology, he was the the one that created humanity out of clay. And Zeus had instructed Prometheus not to give humanity the ability to, not to give them fire because he knew that civilization would come if they had fire. And in Greek mythology and the stories, Prometheus defies Zeus's instructions and gives humanity fire and they're able to build civilization and go against Zeus's wishes. Now, when that happened in the myths, Zeus sentences Prometheus to eternity of torture as punishment for what he had done. And one of the things that's really interesting about Prometheus is when he is sentenced to this eternity of torture, what sort of defines him is he has this independent and defiant spirit against this. He will not bow his spirit to Zeus's power and authority. And he believes that keeping his independence of spirit is what gives him dignity and worth. And so in the midst of this torture, he defies it. He won't bow to it. And he won't allow Zeus to break his spirit. And that sort of uh, is is something that is particularly um, clear about Prometheus in these stories. Now, Obviously, Greek mythology is something that's old. It's been around for a very long time. Well, over the centuries, since that story has originally been told, different authors and different poets have picked up on that characteristic of Prometheus, that independent, defiant spirit, and they have sort of exalted that spirit in literature, and they've modeled characters after Prometheus, and he's become an important person And it's become a virtue in some people's eyes that is worthy to be imitated. Now, I'm not normally in the habit of reading you poetry from the pulpit on Sundays, but I'm going to break that this morning, and I want to read you a short poem. It was written in 1875. It's called Invictus, and some of you have probably heard this poem before. But I'm going to read you this poem because I think this poem captures this sort of Promethean defiance and independence. You will not break my spirit is kind of the tone of this poem. And I think if you listen to it with that in mind, you'll pick up on what I'm talking about. It's only four stanzas, and I'll put it on the screen so you can follow along. It's called Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And then here's a significant last stanza. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm sure you've heard those last lines before. But you can see the Promethean spirit in those last two lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And in our day, I think you could say that Prometheus could almost be a patron saint for our culture, right? Our culture believes that to really live well, 
to live the good life, to squeeze all you can out of these years that you have, you must fiercely defend your independent spirit. You must be true to yourself, and you must be the master of your own fate. And in this culture that we live in, really that humanity has always existed in, this sort of spirit teaches that the very height of stupidity is to deny yourself, to not pursue what you want, to deliberately do anything that will lessen the importance of self and allow someone else to be the master of your fate. That is a very stupid way to live, according to the Promethean spirit, according to this poem, and according to the culture we live in. But Jesus comes along And in a countercultural way, he says exactly the opposite. Life and gain come by following Jesus down a cross-shaped path. They do not come from being the master of your own fate or the captain of your own soul. And a couple of weeks ago in Mark chapter 8, I think it's three weeks ago now, we saw that Christ's exaltation would come through suffering and death. And today... He's going to take that principle that exaltation comes through suffering and death, and he's going to say that that same pattern has to hold true for his followers. If you would follow Jesus, you have to walk in the steps that he walked through suffering, through denying yourself, and ultimately that will lead to profit and to gain. We have to go where he goes in the way that he goes there and not where the world, the culture would have us go. We have to approach life with a cross-shaped path and not the Promethean spirit as it's been exalted through the centuries. And so in Mark chapter 8, 34 to 38, these last few verses of this chapter, we're going to see two ways to pursue a cross-shaped discipleship that will ultimately lead to life. This is the path to gain. This is the path to profit. This is the path to life. Two ways to pursue a cross-shaped discipleship that leads to life. And the first one of these is found in verse 34, and it's embrace the commands of discipleship. Now you can see in verse 34 there, there are three commands given at the end of the verse. Look at these with me. I just want to highlight them to you as we're starting out. Let him deny himself. That's a command. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those are the three commands that we have to embrace if we're going to be disciples. Now, why is Jesus giving these commands here? Why does does he say these things? Why does he tell these things to us, to his disciples? Well, let's find out why. Look at the beginning of verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples... He said to them, if anyone would come after me. So he calls the disciples and anybody else who happens to be nearby, who's curious and onlooker. He calls them to himself and he says these things and he gives the instructions that begin in verse 34 that go all the way through verse 38. This whole chunk is what he says to them and it's one piece. But if you remember, we're sort of jumping in the middle here. It's been several weeks since we've been in Mark. Verse 34 comes right after verses 27 to 33. And this whole situation that Jesus and the disciples are in, in verses 27 to 33. 
What happened there? Why, why does Jesus say these things? Well, in verse 27, verses 27 to 30, Jesus asks, you remember this? He presses on his disciples, who do you say that I am? He wants them to give an answer to this question. And they answer correctly. They say, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you're the Christ. But as they're answering that question with the right word, their definition of that word, their understanding of that word is not fully there. It's not what Jesus understands that word, the anointed one, the Messiah, to be. And so in verse 31, you can look there, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Many things be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus says, okay, Messiah is not wrong. Don't tell people (laughs) that's who I am. But here's the real understanding of what it means to be the anointed one, to be the Messiah. It means that exaltation, authority, reigning as king will only come through rejection and through suffering. Now, when the disciples hear this, they don't have a shelf for that book. It's not on their radar. And so they respond to Jesus by rebuking him. You saw this in verse 32. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And the other disciples were right along with this. And Jesus gives it right back to them in verse 33. But turning, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus gives it right back to them and tells them that if you don't understand that suffering defines what it means to be Messiah, then you're thinking from a manward perspective and not from a Godward perspective. And so if you were to summarize verses 27 to 33, what's leading up to our passage, you would say, this is clearly laying out what the ministry of Jesus, what his work will be all about. It will be exaltation through suffering and through death. Now you get to verse 34 and Jesus turns the tables And he says, if this is what is true of me, then if you are going to be my follower, this has to be true of you too. Here are the implications for you. He moves from who he is to what this means for them. One author said it this way. When believers confess who Jesus is, and there are lots of people who will do this, right? They're in many churches all across our country. They confess who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Anointed One. But they never move to this next phrase. They also inevitably confess what they must become. When you say that Jesus is the suffering Son of God and He died on the cross for my sins, that has implications for your life and the way that you and I live. So what are those implications? What does Jesus' suffering mean for his disciples. Look at verse 34 again. Here's those three commands. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Let's look at those individually so we get a clear picture of what he's talking about and what the implications are for us as disciples. First of all, to be his disciple, you have to deny yourself. This is the same word 
Ironically, right after Jesus rebukes Peter, this is the same word that is used when Peter denies Jesus three times the night of the crucifixion. It means to refuse to acknowledge or recognize, to not want anything to do with. If you remember in that story, Peter was adamant, right? Remember, he even swears as he's denying Christ. He was adamant that he didn't know Jesus. He denied him. And a core element here of the life of a disciple is to deny yourself. What does that mean? Well, we saw earlier, we talked about Prometheus and human beings have always had this this understanding or this belief that dignity and worth come through independence of spirit, through being the captain of my own soul, to making my, my own calls, calling my own shots. I mean, this was the temptation in the garden, right? Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be exalted? Don't you want to be in charge and make the decisions? Has God really said you need to evaluate God's word, not just trust it. You need to be in the pilot's chair. And denying yourself means that you are no longer living with self in control and in the driver's seat. Self-denial means this. Here's how one commentator described it. It keeps in check the human proclivity to put self at the center of the universe, which expresses itself in self-absorption, self-admiration, self-pity, self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-seeking, self-assertion, and selfishness. That's quite a list. And how often do we tend to live without even realizing it with these character qualities true of us? self-absorption, self-admiration, even self-pity, where I am the center of everything to the point where I pity myself because I'm not getting what I think I deserve. Self-seeking, self-assertion. Following Christ means denying yourself. And secondly, the second command here is disciples have to not only deny themselves, they have to take up their cross. Now, when he says take up here, you get the idea of picking up, right? Take up your cross, pick up your cross. Well, it's not quite like picking up your morning coffee. It's more like putting on a backpack for a journey. You're not intending to put this down again. You're intending to take this up and have it with you for the long haul. That's the idea that's given here. You're going to carry this for a while. And the first two commands here really in exchange You drop yourself, you get rid of self-centeredness, and you pick up a cross. You refuse to acknowledge self, and instead you pick up this, this cross, this instrument of death. Now, most of you are good Bible students, and you've you've been good Bible students for a long time. You're familiar with the crucifixion. You know what a cross looks like, and you understand something about what it means to die on a cross. Some of you are new, so let me run over the basics of this. And if you've studied this before, maybe it'll refresh your memory because it's important. Jesus is calling his disciples to this here to take up their cross. So what, what are the basics? Well, this is a method, obviously, of execution. And death by a cross is not a humane way to die, to say the least. 
The very reason that you execute criminals by a cross is because it's so horrific that it will detour others from committing crimes. It's insanely sadistic. We don't even really have a category for this type of death today. The Greek philosopher Cicero said that crucifixion is the most cruel and disgusting penalty. So you're beaten as a criminal, beaten almost to the point of death. You're tortured, and then you're required to carry this wooden cross that would have been incredibly heavy to your very own place of execution outside the city. And when you carry the cross to the place of execution, you lay it on the ground, and then you are fixed to the wooden beams of the cross by your arms, spread out and being nailed to those wooden beams, and by your feet, placed one on top of the other, and nailed to the wooden beam as well. And then a small seat or a footrest is given to you in order to prolong the suffering so that you don't die as quickly as you would die without it. And sometimes death by crucifixion could take days. And you died from asphyxiation, from not being able to breathe, or by loss of blood because it was a massive amount of blood that you lost through this whole experience. And the crazy thing is, is that the details of this were left up to each individual Roman cohort. It wasn't mandated how you went about executing criminals because they wanted the evil of these soldiers to be put on full display and they were allowed to do whatever they thought would bring the most agony in any given situation. And so I say all that to say taking up your cross is sobering, serious business. Once you did this, you have no independence or defiance left in who you are. And so what tends to happen, I think, for us, though, is we read this, that Jesus tells his disciples that you have to take up your cross and follow me. We tend to read this and we jump too quickly to using it as a metaphor in our own lives. Now, there's a place for that, and we'll get there later on, but we tend to read it and we think, okay, how can I take up my cross this week? And again, we'll get to that point where we're talking about it, but think for a second of how the disciples would have heard these words when they were first being uttered here. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross. What would that have meant to Peter, James, and John and the others? Well, they had just heard moments earlier for the first time that the Messiah, the King, would be be rejected and would suffer and would die at the hands of the religious leaders. So they know that Jesus fully expects to go to Jerusalem and to die at the hands of the religious leaders. And now they're being told that in order to follow him, to be his disciples, they have to do the same thing. They have to take up a cross and they have to die in the most horrific way possible. And in fact, the only path to true life is to die. They have to walk with Jesus to the religious leaders and be killed with him. That's how they would have heard this. And that's the third command, right? Follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. Go with Jesus wherever he goes. Walk with him and be with him no matter what that entails for you. Be with him to the very end. He The person of Christ becomes the guide and the goal for everything in your life. He is the end. You follow him. You are with him no matter what. 
That's what it means to be his disciple. So let's be honest. These are hard words. I mean, this is massive for these disciples to be hearing this. Jesus is basically saying, who wants to go suffer and die with me and forfeit the one life that you have? You get one shot at this life humanity thing, and I want you to give it away and die in one of the most horrific ways possible. So you're hearing this and you're going, why? Why would anyone choose to do this? Why didn't everyone just leave Jesus in this moment as soon as he said this and go away? Why would we choose to be followers of Christ when this is what is required of us? Why? What would motivate you to this? Well, that's the second way to pursue a cross-shaped discipleship. You have to embrace these commands, and they are hard commands. But here's the, the necessary piece that you have to grasp. You have to embody the motives of discipleship. And these are found in verses 35 to 38. So he gives these commands and they're hard commands. But now you and I fuel obedience to these commands by these motives that Jesus lays out. And it still looks hard, but man, there's fuel to make this happen in our lives. As we read verses 35 to 38. Now, I want you to notice something about verses 35 to 38. What's the first word in each of those verses? All four of them. What's the first word? Look down there. Verse 35, four. Verse 36, four. Verse 37, if you're reading the ESV, four. And verse 38, four. The first word in all of those verses is Four, because this is why you would obey those commands. These are the motivations that will lead you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. This is why the path of the cross is worth your life. As crazy as it sounds to most of us, and I'm sure as crazy as it sounded to the disciples, the path of the cross, the path of self-denial is the path to ultimate profit. This is the way to gain and to profit. And if you're making an investment, this is the path that guarantees a monumental return as hard as it may be. Let me just read through verses 35 to 37 and notice the words here that talk about profit and gain, and exchanging one thing for another, a bad thing for a good thing, all right? Verse 35, for whoever would save his life, right? That's something you get. Save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You can see it again there. Profit, loss, gain, forfeit. For what can a man give in return for his soul? These verses are filled with talk of profit and gain because this is the motivation for why you do these things. Jesus is talking about the dynamics of a great exchange. You lose one thing and you get something that is infinitely better in exchange for the thing that you lost. The rewards of self-denial are astonishing and they're counterintuitive. They don't make sense at first glance. And there takes a great amount of faith in the person and promises of Jesus to go through with this. If you were to approach a first century criminal, perhaps a guy like Barabbas, 
And you were to tell him that the way to save his life would be for him to carry his cross to his place of execution, to be nailed to it, and then to suffer and die on his cross. That's the way to save your life. He would mock you for your stupidity. That wouldn't make sense. Jesus here uses another synonym in these verses for taking up your cross. And the synonym he uses in verse 35 is lose your life. Same thing. Take up your cross, lose your life, deny yourself. All of those are the same same thing. And the way to save your life is by losing it. Look at verse 35 again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. So all these synonyms are describing the same thing, losing your life, denying yourself, taking up your cross. So what does Jesus actually mean by this? Let's think about that a little bit deeper. Is he saying that the way to save your life is that you have to, or is he saying that losing your life, denying yourself, is to abuse yourself and to be really harsh with your body, with your emotions? Is he saying to do whatever is the most painful and the most difficult thing? You ought to wake up at 4.30 every morning and beat yourself on the back with a whip and not eat healthy food. Is that what he's saying when he says to lose your life or deny yourself? No, because denying yourself and losing your life is actually in service to a greater end. It's the prioritizing of your life under something else. It's no longer having self as the highest good that I pursue. It's putting myself into the service of something greater. What is that greater thing? Look at verse 35. But whoever, the middle, loses his life for my sake... And the Gospels will save it. Here's where it all comes together. Self-denial, losing your life, has a particular shape to it. It means submitting every area of your life to a higher goal and a higher priority. Jesus becomes the defining feature of your life and the Gospel becomes the great theme of your life. And if this is how it works, if gaining comes through losing, then we have to get it right. Why? Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It would be utterly worthless if you could get everything you want out of this life. I mean, if you made a list today of all the things you want in this life, what would be most important to you? Big house, power, authority, whatever it may be. If you could make a list and you got all of those things, everything in this life that you wanted, it would not be worth your soul. It wouldn't be worth it to have your soul lost forever. Why? Look at verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. And when you read these verses, there are a couple of concepts that are at stake here that you have to grasp. You have to properly, first of all, you have to properly value a human soul, okay? That comes into the picture. We're talking about value, profit, loss, forfeit. And so Jesus says you have to properly value a human soul. You have to understand how much a soul is worth. What could you give in exchange for the eternal salvation of your soul? Nothing. So you have to properly value a human soul. But second, you have to understand if this is the value, the cost, the worth of a soul, 
then how do you ensure that that soul is saved? How do you ensure that you actually get eternal life for your soul? Because that becomes the most important thing. If the soul is of that much value, then how do you save that soul? How does it come that you get eternal life? And he says here, it only comes through humbly denying self and committing wholly to Jesus Christ because of his life, his death, and his direction. That is the path to gain. That's the only way to gain. And that's the first motive. It's profit and it's gain of your soul. That's why you do these things, because nothing else is nearly as important as this, as your own soul, and here's the path to it. But the second motive is found in verse 38, and it's the motive of avoiding shame. Look at verse 38 with me. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So they're really, this whole passage is built on two options, two mutually exclusive options. You can suffer shame in the present life as you deny self and follow Christ, or you can suffer shame in the future life. Those are your two options. Those are my two options. According to this, Jesus makes it very clear in verse 38, those who are embarrassed by him and by his demands and what he calls them to and by his word, those who are embarrassed about him before the broader culture and refuse to die to self, who keep self at the center, they will be embarrassed when he is enthroned in glory one day. There will come a time they will not be happy with that decision. Now, when you read verse 38 and I read verse 38, a lot of times we tend to think of this as describing the moment that Jesus comes back to earth. The second coming, he arrives in the clouds from heaven. And that certainly is a part of this. But to really understand the shame that is being felt here, you have to see this as part of something much bigger than just the moment when Jesus comes back. This is describing not just his return, but all that that involves in his enthronement as the king of the universe, his sovereignty over everything and his rulership overall. Verse 38 is describing the time when Jesus will be seen as the sovereign authority and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I mean, this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. You're familiar with this, talking about the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He doesn't just come to earth again. He comes to earth again to rule and reign with an iron fist and overall. And so when you read this verse here and it talks about shame, we can either be ashamed now or in the future. 
The question is, will you and I be ashamed before the rulers and authorities of this age for our commitment to Christ? Or will you and I be ashamed before the sovereign and enthroned king of the universe? At this moment, when he's given dominion over everything, we're forced to bow the knee because we denied him in this life. And we kept self. Self was so important. I just needed to be self-absorbed in this life and have what I wanted. We'll suffer shame at that moment. Jesus was rejected in this life only to be exalted in the next. And he sets that pattern and that example. And that pattern will hold true for us as well if we're his followers and his disciples. This passage is pretty direct, isn't it? It is a direct call to us to embrace these commands and to embody these motives, to process through shame and what this looks like in the future or now before the broader culture, to think through the worth of a soul and profit and gain and what it means to deny self now and to gain eternity in the future with Christ. We have to process through these things and think through these things. But how do we do that? I mean, we've given some broad principles here. So what does this look like this week? How do we evaluate these things? Embracing and embodying. Let me ask you some questions. And this is not comprehensive, but hopefully this will get us thinking in the right direction. Maybe you can discuss this at home with your spouse or your kids or whoever. Here's some questions to ask. In light of this passage, what do I find my identity in? In other words, what defines me? What is the most important thing about me? Who am I? Who are you? Is it my job? Is it relationships? Is it talent? Is it intellect? What defines you? What do you find your identity in? It's a tough question to to answer a lot of times. But it needs to be found as an image bearer who has been saved by grace, who is following after Jesus Christ, denying self. Another question, what strikes fear or anxiety in your heart? Why do I ask that? Well, chances are, if something strikes fear or anxiety in your heart, it's because the loss of that thing is something that you value. You fear it because you value it so much. And so a lot of times the path... To understanding our idols and what we find our identity in and what we find our worth in is through our anxiety and fear. And so in light of this passage, we have to ask what brings us anxiety and fear and concern? Another question, do I value a sense of belonging to the culture around me rather than taking up my cross and following Jesus? And that can be a variety of different subcultures, whatever you most closely identify with. Do I value a sense of belonging to the culture around me rather than taking up my cross and following Jesus? Another question, am I willing to be shamed in this present life if it means glory with Christ in the next life? And then last question here, has the Bible recently exposed a cultural norm in your thinking and acting that you have simply taken for granted that's not compatible with following Jesus. 
And here's what I mean by that. Have you been moving along in your life and all of a sudden the words of Scripture have confronted you with something that you have assumed to be true and assumed that this is a good And you realize that's because the broader culture presents this as a good. And I have been confronted with that. And I need to reevaluate my thinking. That's called worldliness. And the danger here is that we, we don't have the Bible confront our thinking because we're so soaked in worldliness that we don't even recognize it. And so if that has not happened to you recently, it's probably not because you have everything nailed down perfectly. It's probably because you're floating along in the current of the world and it's dominating your thinking more than the Bible is. Scripture should be challenging our assumptions, what we think of as normal, the worldly patterns and habits of our thinking and rearranging those things on a consistent basis. And if it's not, it's probably because we're not denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Christ to the point where his word determines how we see the world and other people and ourselves. This passage is not trivial. This passage begins this whole section on discipleship, and it sets the pace For this whole section, all the way through the end of chapter 10, everything goes back to this. And it's because we are prone to Promethean self-exaltation, are we not? Independence of spirit. I am the master of my fate. And Jesus calls us to come and die with him to ourselves. That's the call of discipleship. And you cannot have both. I cannot have both. I can't pamper my self-will and do everything for self during the week and then show up here on Sundays to get a dose of Jesus and think I'm good and I'm on my way to gaining eternal life. Following Jesus means strapping that cross on your back daily. It means letting God's word rearrange the furniture in my mind and my soul. But the beauty of this whole thing The beauty of this path is that you are following him. You're with him. It's a relationship with Christ. In that sense, it's not drudgery. In that sense, you could even say it's probably not difficult because you're with him and you're rejoicing in him and you're related to him every single day. And when you're following him, the results are glory and the gain of eternal life. And that is enough to motivate us to do whatever needs to be done when it comes to denying self. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we need your work in our hearts. These are hard things. These are hard truths. But you speak them to your disciples and ultimately to us for our good. This is what we need to hear, Lord. We need to be challenged in this way. Our self-will, our independence, our defiance of you and your word needs to be confronted directly. And we need to hear that the path to life and joy and pleasures forevermore is found by denying self, taking up our cross, and following you in this pattern and example and following you because of the work that you've done on the cross, making this possible 
securing our redemption through your shed blood and your resurrection. And so I pray even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that you would bring these things home into our hearts and you would change us. Thank you for all you've done in Christ's name. Amen.